Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing okay. I just had a chat with our government handler, and he informed me that we really need to have a higher percentage of educational content if we want to keep that sweet, sweet grant money rolling in. And you guys, I want to keep that sweet, sweet grant money rolling in. So, I thought that as a public service announcement, I would help let you guys know what you should do if you ever find yourselves in a high-stakes hangman competition. We've all been there. You're at a casino in Monaco. You just lost all your money at Baccarat because you don't know what Baccarat is because nobody knows what Baccarat is. You remember being pretty good at hangman back in elementary school. So you roll up to the hangman table, put down the rest of your money, and go all in on a high-stakes round of hangman. And you've really got to win, because your great-aunt needs an operation, and also, your town's about to lose their community center? Probably? Anyway, you're feeling pretty confident, but then you look across the table, and you see that the guy you're up against is the nefarious Count Bad Guy Yo. Oh no, not him! That guy's got a dictionary for a left hand! He's notorious in hangman circles. Well, not to worry. Here's what you do. When it's your turn to choose a word, pick rhythm. That's right. R-H-Y-T-H-M. And that counts as a fucking word. I know. I mean, that's a word like a platypus is a mammal. Or the Orlando Magic or a basketball team. I mean, technically, yeah, but come on. Anyway, there is no way Count, whatever the fuck I said his name is, is gonna guess that in time. I mean, unless you guys are playing Bishop of Shrievingham rules. In Bishop of Shrievingham rules, the letter-choosing party gets to choose the identity of the criminal who is being hanged in the little cartoon that you're drawing. The Bishop of Shrievingham, of course, insisted upon this variation on the rules because he wanted to make sure that if he were given the opportunity to execute a person, even a hypothetical stick figure person, that that individual was Belgian. The bishop famously, of course, had been traumatized as a young man by what became known as the Waffle Incident. Now, how does having the hypothetical stick figure criminal being hanged be Belgian benefit the letter chooser? It doesn't. But, Due to a loophole created by that rule, the letter chooser can insist that the hypothetical criminal being hanged is an octopus. Now, obviously, that creates a huge advantage for the letter chooser. Not only does an octopus have several more appendages than the average criminal, even a Belgian, but an octopus, being an invertebrate, is also not as susceptible to hanging. So, not only do you get letter guesses for each of the offending octopus's eight tentacles as well as its head, you also get six additional letter guesses to create a hangman's assistant stick figure body who has to go to the store to buy octopus poison. 
Now, for obvious reasons, Bishop of Shrievingham rules are not allowed in most casinos, but as Count whatever the hell I said his name was knows very well, Monaco is not most places. And on alternate Thursdays, any rule variations instituted by major ecclesiastical figures must be allowed. But what's this? The clock just struck midnight. It's no longer Thursday, and Count Bad Guyo is totally out of luck. You just won Hangman with the word rhythm. Rhythm. The point is that rhythm is a very good word to pick at Hangman. I mean, it's all consonants and no vowels, unless you count Y, which is a tweener at best. It's a word that would not look out of place on a Welsh street sign. Anyway, that's enough education for today. Let me just take off my tweed jacket with leather elbow pads and flip my chair back around so I'm sitting front ways in it. There we go. Now we're ready to talk about a comic book. So without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. I actually talked about Hangman a lot longer than I anticipated doing, so I'm just gonna skip the synopsis rhyme. Captain America, number 268. April, 1982. Peace on Earth, goodwill to man. Ooh, I hope this issue is an homage to David Strathern's character Whistler from the movie Sneakers. You know, because he was always saying that. Spoiler, it isn't. But it is written by J.M. DeMatteis, drawn by Mike Zack, inked by John Beatty, lettered by Jim Novak, colored by Bob Sharon, and edited by Jim Salakrup. Defensive lineup! Nighthawk! Valkyrie! Hellcat! Gargoyle! But mostly... Captain America, previously in The Defenders. Back when he was in college, billionaire-do-well-bird enthusiast Kyle Richmond, a.k.a. Nighthawk, used to be an irresponsible asshole. He still is, but also, he used to be. One time, he was out drunk driving and crashed his car, killing his girlfriend Mindy. Bummer. But unbeknownst to Kyle, Mindy wasn't actually dead. She was only paralyzed. Lucky girl. Kyle's asshole dad paid Mindy to go away and told Kyle she had died in the accident. Mindy spent the following decade using her hush money to plan an elaborate revenge against Kyle. This revenge included purchasing a bankrupt college campus, reprogramming some doombots and dressing them up as hippies, and arming the resulting hippie bots with laser guitars and steel-plated razor-sharp picket signs. Hooray! With the help of a thoroughly confused Spider-Man, Kyle managed to thwart Mindy's plans. Once she was defeated, Mindy broke down and admitted that she still loved Kyle and didn't really want to kill him after all. Kyle thought that was nice and arranged to have Mindy sent off to a fancy mental institution, which, to be fair, is probably where most people who don't want to kill Kyle belong. Soon after shunting his ex-girlfriend off to the asylum, Nighthawk was hit by a mysterious psychic attack which left him almost totally paralyzed except at night when he was still as strong as two strong men. After a few months, Kyle went to visit Mindy, and after a little poking around, discovered that the hospital she was being treated at, Carrie White Acres, 
was actually being run by an evil jerk named August Masters, the head of a covert branch of the government known as the CIB. Masters was using Gary Whiteacres to experiment on mental patients and exploit their latent psychic abilities. It turned out that Mindy was one of the world's most powerful telepaths, and during early experiments on her, she had accidentally sent out a psychic blast which had paralyzed Kyle. Oops! Masters ordered Mindy to attack Kyle, but Mindy couldn't go through with it, and instead sent a legion of psychic mind rats to attack Masters and his government stooges. Hooray! Soon thereafter, Kyle threw a party to celebrate the fact that he wouldn't have to go to jail for all of the gross financial malfeasance he and his company had done. Hooray? The festivities were interrupted by a group of August Masters underlings, this time claiming to represent an agency called the CID. Valkyrie, Hellcat, and Gargoyle attempted to intercede on Nighthawk's behalf, so the purported government stooges used knockout drugs on the confused quartet of crime fighters and carted them away. Previously in Captain America. Captain America, a.k.a. Steve Rogers, discovered that the costumed supervillain known as Number One, who had been leading a conspiracy to overthrow the U.S. government, was actually then-current president Richard Nixon. Once this conspiracy was uncovered, Nixon suicided in the Oval Office in front of a horrified Captain America. Gadzooks! After naming an asylum for psychics after a Stephen King character, what author's works will Demetrius cite in this issue? What calamitous event will send a panic-stricken Captain America scrambling in terror? And does all of that Nixon stuff I mentioned impact this storyline in any way? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... Ursula K. Le Guin and Philip K. Dick. His romantic partner talks to him about feelings. And not really. I mean, I guess thematically a little bit. But it did happen previously in Captain America. And I am going to bring up that storyline every chance I get. Including later on in this episode. Some guys dressed like Roman centurions grab an unconscious Kyle from the unfurnished room where he and his fellow defenders are still suffering from the effects of the knockout gas and drag him into a fancy pants control room. A few seconds later, a groggy Kyle slowly opens his eyes and is shocked to see the grinning face of August Masters. After going through a brief recap of their previous encounters, Kyle is like, what are you and your CID thugs up to now, Masters? August Masters is like, Oh, Kyle Richmond, you stupid idiot. There's no such thing as the CID. Seems like you could have looked that up. Or asked almost anyone. I mean, I got this badge at Spencer's Gifts. It says Official Bikini Inspector on it. Kyle is like, Oh, so you're really with the OBI. Well, in that case, I demand you release me immediately because, sir, I can assure you, all of my bikinis are up to code. Masters is like, wow, I had heard about your brain being removed and put in a punch bowl full of drugs, but I guess for some reason I had thought that at some point they put it back in your head. You know, I guess that's on me for making assumptions. Meanwhile, in Brooklyn, Steve Rogers is out on a date with his girlfriend, Bernie Rosenthal. They just went and saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, and Steve has thoughts. He goes off on a little diatribe about Indiana Jones being a bad role model for children. 
Bernie finds it charming how old-fashioned Steve is and blurts out that she loves him. When he hears the word love, Steve gets a panicked look on his face and immediately tries to change the subject. Bernie doubles down and is like, Didn't you hear what I said? I said I love you. Steve is like, And I think that you are a very nice lady. Now, let's go eat some fish or something. Oof. Steve's response goes over about as well as you might expect. Bernie informs Steve that their date is over and insists that Steve drive them back to the apartment building where they both live. It's kind of weird that Steve is driving because it's pretty clearly Bernie's car. Unless Steve has personalized license plates that read Bernie, which would certainly seem to imply that he is more serious about this relationship than one would infer from his words. Unless he's just a big fan of the guy who would have just been elected mayor of Burlington, Vermont at that point. Who knows? Well, regardless of Steve's political affiliations, he and Bernie's ill-fated date attracted the attention of some guy who looks like a tall Danny DeVito. The stranger stares at Steve from afar with a look of shocked recognition. Interesting. Maybe he subscribes to Guys Who Respond Poorly in Emotional Situations magazine and is just starstruck to see this month's centerfold in person. That's probably it. When he gets home, Steve tries to distract himself from how badly he fucked up by working on the latest assignment from his job as a comic book artist. He sits down at his desk and is about to start drawing, but before pencil even touches paper, he shrieks out in pain and collapses to the ground. Oh no, did he just read the fine print on his work-for-hire contract with Marvel? Did he get another round of margin notes from Jim Shooter? Did he find out that Vince Coletta is going to be inking his work? No, it was none of those very funny jokes about Bronze Age Marvel comics. Bernie and one of Steve's other neighbors, a guy named Josh, burst into his room to check on him and see if he's okay. He tells him that he just had a nightmare and shoes them off. But once they're gone, Steve changes into his Captain America duds and leaps out the skylight. It turns out Steve didn't have a nightmare after all. See, a couple issues ago, Cap ran afoul of some dipshit named Morgan McNeil Hardy, who thought that a good way to improve the country was to hook a bunch of telepaths up to a fancy gizmo that used their powers to rewrite reality. The problem was, some of the telepaths were of the opinion that the thing that was wrong with America was that it wasn't racist enough, and decided to use their powers to rectify that. Captain America felt otherwise, and it was a whole to-do. Hardy and most of the telepaths died in the resulting kerfuffle, but two psychics survived. A young black woman named Ursula Richards, and a little white kid named Philip Le Guin. The sharp mental pain that Steve had just experienced was a psychic distress call from Ursula and Philip. Captain America heads to Ursula's last known address and finds that the place is in shambles. Suddenly, he's zinged with another one of those psychic whammies that floored him a few minutes ago, but this time, the pain is accompanied by an image of Ursula and Philip being kidnapped and loaded into the back of a van. When he recovers from his telepath-induced migraine, Steve places a call to S.H.I.E.L.D. and has the helicarrier pick him up. Nick Fury is either dead for a while or on hiatus or out buying cigars or something, so Cap has a little chat with Nick's magnificently mustachioed Major Domo, Dum Dum Dugan. Dum Dum introduces Cap to an agent named Gail Runciter, 
who straps him into some kind of a cosmic hairdryer chair, which she reckons might be able to play back the psychic messages which Steve's brain has been receiving, but is unable to fully process. Steve is kind of a dick to Ms. Runciter, so my guess is either she's secretly a supervillain, or he's going to end up dating her at some point. Possibly both. Runciter manages to get the machines to show her a few seconds of footage from the psychic SOS lingering in Steve's head. The images show a heavily guarded, secluded mountain base. But after briefly displaying this picture on a view screen, the machine blows up. Bummer. I mean, maybe they can use a cosmic diffuser on a handheld cosmic hairdryer to finish the job, but I doubt the cosmic rollers will set properly that way. Meanwhile, in the Colorado Rockies, inside that base that showed up on the view screen for a second, August Masters is having a little chat with Kyle. As Masters pushes his wheelchair down a hallway, Kyle is like, What are you and your government buddies going to do with me now? Masters is like, Jeez, I just told you I don't work for the government. You don't have the short-term memory of two strong men, that's for sure. See, I used to work for the CIA, which, unlike the CIB and the CID, is an actual thing. But they weren't evil and nationalistic enough for my taste, so I decided to go rogue and start doing my own thing. Ah, here we are. He wheels Kyle into a hospital room where Mindy is strapped to a gurney. She has a high-tech-looking colander with a bunch of wires sticking out of it, fastened to her noggin, and appears to be in a not insignificant amount of pain. Masters timed this trip so that their arrival at Mindy's room would coincide with the sunset. His diurnal paralysis no longer a factor, Kyle is suddenly infused with the strength of two strong men. He leaps from his wheelchair and rushes to Mindy's side and attempts to comfort her. August is like, See, we gathered a bunch of psychics here for a little project we're working on, but Mindy here is the most powerful of the bunch. The problem is, she's a little unstable. Seeing as thinking about you seems to be the only thing that can calm her down, we figured you could be her handler for us. Kyle is like, why the fuck would I help you jerks? Masters is like, I am so glad you asked. He gestures towards a nearby monitor and shows Kyle that Hellcat, Valkyrie, and Gargoyle are still passed out in that unfurnished room from the beginning of the comic. If you don't do as we tell you to, we're gonna murder your pals. Kyle is super pissed, but is like, fine, I'll do what you say, for now, but I've got two questions for you. One, what are you going to do with all these psychics? And B, why are all the guards here dressed like Roman centurions? Masters is like, is that all? Well, A, we're gonna start World War III, and two, no reason. Huh. A bit later, at a dive bar in the foothills outside the secret base, a dark-haired stranger pulls up a bar stool and orders a beer. He asks the bartender if he's seen anything strange around there lately. The bartender is like, Nope. An old prospector-looking guy overhears and sidles over to the stranger. He lights up what looks like a joint and is like, I might could have seen something a bit peculiar. What's it to you, stranger? The stranger explains that he's a scientist who is investigating claims of UFO sightings in the area. The prospector-looking guy is like, 
Well, I reckon I ain't seen none of your big city UFOs, but I seen some weird doings happening in these mountains. Just last week, I seen a whole bunch of fellas dressed in kooky get-ups carrying fancy pants machines. If you give me fifty dollars, I'll drive you up to where I seen them in my jeep. For sixty-five, I'll roll you one of these doobies. The stranger opts for the fifty-dollar option, and off they go. They drive up into the mountains for about half an hour. Then, the prospector surreptitiously presses a button on the jeep's steering console and pulls over. They get out of the jeep, and the prospector is like, You really should have ought to sprung for the extra fifteen dollars. I hate to see a fella die what ain't nicely toasted. Just then, a bunch of guys dressed like Roman centurions carrying laser blasters bust out of a nearby cave and start attacking the stranger. But the stranger has a surprise of his own. He pulls off a latex mask and reveals that under it, he is Captain America! Hooray! Which means that he was wearing a latex mask over his superhero cowl. Huh. Cap beats up all the centurions and rushes into the cave, where he finds himself confronted by even more Roman centurions and a smugly grinning August Masters. Masters is like, Captain America, I am such a big fan. Now, please stop beating up my perfectly normally dressed minions. I'd hate to have to kill you before I get to deliver my mandatory villainous monologue. Meanwhile, in a different part of the underground complex, Ursula, Philip, and a bunch of other people who are presumably psychic as well are hooked up to some sort of huge nonsense machine. Phil and Ursula have a telepathic conversation about the fact that they can sense that Captain America is nearby and isn't too stoked about the situation he's in. Ursula suggests that the two of them send out psychic projections of their heads to have a chat with some other superheroes that she can sense are nearby and see if they can lend Captain America a hand. Phil thinks that sounds like a good plan, so a few seconds later, Gargoyle, Valkyrie, and Hellcat are awakened from their sleep-gas-induced slumbers by a sharp sigh-blast of intense pain. They open their eyes and are surprised to see their whereabouts, and even more surprised when floating psychic projections of Phil and Ursula's heads appear in the air in front of them and fill them in on the situation. No sooner have the disembodied heads finished their exposition than a group of guards dressed like Roman centurions bust into the room to see why their prisoners are awake and who they're talking to. Having just been briefed on the place's whole deal, the trio of heroes waste little time and start beating the shit out of the Ursat's Romans. Hooray! Elsewhere in the facility, August Masters is giving Cap a variation on the standard bad guy, we're not so different, you and I, speech. Masters is like, look, our organization is made up of former government agents and spies. We all love America, just like you do. We're not so different, you and I. We're just tired of all the red tape and bureaucracy. I mean, sure, in our old jobs, we still did horrible things and murdered a ton of people and overthrew a whole bunch of legitimate governments, but after we did, we had to fill out a lot of paperwork. Ugh. And they never let me dress people up like Roman centurions. Thanks, Obama. That's Obama Stevenson, my old supervisor. I hate that guy. Anyway, 
We started our own group and kidnapped a bunch of psychics. We're gonna point them at the Soviet Union and have them kill as many communists as they can. We figure either the Ruskies will be wiped out by the initial blast, or they'll have no choice but to declare war on us and then we can finally launch our nukes at them and get rid of them that way. Pretty neat plan, huh? Captain America does not think that is a pretty neat plan. He punches the shit out of August Masters. Hooray! As Cap lands his first blow, the alarms start going off, informing the guards that the defenders have just escaped. Steve rushes towards the sound of the klaxons, punching jerks as he goes. Before long, he runs into Valkyrie, Patsy, and Isaac, and sees that they have already met up with Kyle and Mindy, and are in the process of freeing Phil, Ursula, and the other captive psychics. It's a pretty big crowd. Cap points the defenders towards the cave he used to enter the facility, and tells them to get everyone out through there. When they get to civilization, he wants them to contact Dum Dum Duggan at S.H.I.E.L.D. and have him send in the troops. The gang asks Cap if he's coming with them, and he tells them, nah, he's not done jerk-punching yet. As the defenders make their way towards the exit, Steve heads back towards the control room so he can punch August Masters some more, and maybe break his computers or something. Gee, Cap, I applaud the sentiment and all, but I'm pretty sure splitting the party is a mistake. Sure enough, when the star-spangled super-soldier reaches the control room and confronts Masters, he finds that the former G-Man is still as smug as ever. Smirking as he gestures towards a security monitor, Masters is like, Hi, Cap. As you can see, I've sealed the exit to this place and locked you and your friends in here with me. Now, I'm sure they can bust down the door eventually. I mean, Kyle has the strength of two strong men. Can you imagine? But the thing is, I've also initiated a self-destruct sequence for this whole place. And it'll kill us all a good three minutes before your buddies can escape. So, unless you surrender and tell your pals to turn around, a lot of innocent people are going to die. Reluctantly, Captain America does as August Masters requests. Cap and most of the defenders are taken into custody, and the psychics are strapped back into their nonsense machine. Kyle is like, You aren't going to lock me up too? What's the matter? You don't see me as a danger? Masters is like, got it in one. Plus, we need to keep you awake if we're going to keep Mindy here docile. Now, go be a good boy, or we'll murder one of your friends or something. Kyle gets super pissed, but figures there's nothing he can do. He thinks to himself, man, if only I could get in touch with Doctor Strange. He'd be able to get us out of this. Despite the nearly catatonic state Masters and his faux Roman flunkies keep her in, Something about the desperation in Kyle's thoughts penetrates Mindy's consciousness. She concentrates with all her might and thinks the name Dr. Strange. To be continued. I gotta say, Mindy interacting psychically with Steve makes me a little bit nervous. I mean, seems like there's at least a chance that she'll end up paralyzing him the way she did Kyle. And it's not like Steve has a great track record of interacting psychically with blonde women who suffer from mental illness either. I mean, there's a decent chance Mindy comes out of this just enunciating a long string of capital vowels.
And joining us once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? Hey, it's going pretty good. It's a weekend for me, Mm -hmm. which means I got to sleep in a little bit and have a relaxing day reading this uh, comic book. Cool. Um, I'm glad you got to chill out a little bit. How's things uh, on your end? Oh, you know, pretty good. I uh, ended up reading a whole bunch of uh, old The Shadow comics recently. That's been pretty fun. Nice. You ever listen to the coaster song, The Shadow? Gosh, I don't know. It's called The Shadow Knows, and it's pretty cool. Wait, like about the character, The Shadow? Yeah. I didn't know the coasters were a band that would sing about popular media like that. I had that song about Charlie Brown. Really? Yeah. It's weird, like, that song is actually a fucking trip, because that's the, Why's everybody always picking on me? Mm -hmm. It's a character named Charlie Brown. I believe Peanuts was being published at the time, so Charlie Brown would have been in the popular culture. But the character they describe in that song is just, like, a kind of dumb beatnik. (laughs) Was I missing something with the early Peanuts strips? (laughs) Gosh. Because he did have a wise everybody always picking on me kind of vibe to him, but I feel like maybe they just wrote a song about a different Charlie Brown. So, heck, maybe their song, The Shadow Knows, is also about a different The Shadow Who Knows. Hmm. Maybe. Unlikely. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's like a concept thing where it's like, you know, Charlie Brown in the future has grown up to become a dumb beatnik. Oh, so... Your supposition is that the coasters were writing alternate universe Charlie Brown fan fiction in their song. Well, supposition's a pretty big word. (laughs) Thank you. It's just a thought. All right. Well, supposing we move on and start talking about a comic book. How'd that be? I suppose that would be fine. All right. Corey, what did you think of this comic book? Well, the first thing I have to say is, back in my day, heroes stood for something. Because <laughs> wow, does that come up a few times? Yeah, the first time that it came up, it really did make me go back and rethink Raiders of the Lost Ark a little bit. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, did that movie have a bad influence on what I consider a hero? And maybe it did. Stealing stuff that doesn't belong to you. That's the weird part, is I don't feel like that would have been the thing that Captain America would have objected to as opposed to a 1940s or 30s movie serial. Like, I don't see Captain America being like, in my day, we had serials that didn't embrace colonialism. (laughs) Right. It's like, it seems like there would have been more of that then. But... I don't know, just thinking back to it, there was something about Indiana Jones where, like, part of what you liked about him was that he wasn't, like, a standard cookie-cutter hero, and he was out for self-interest and stuff, and I don't know, he was kind of a lovable rogue who was out for personal gain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you'd think that the Nazi melting and whatnot would have (laughs) assuaged Cap's concerns, but I guess not. Well, he does say, like, he did some good along the way, and I assume by that he meant, well, he didn't melt all those Nazis, so I Mm. enjoyed that part. Yeah. But it was interesting to rethink, like, the context that Captain America grew up in, and, like, he 
would have come of age at a time just after the institution of the Hayes Code, where movies, especially ones aimed at children, would have really strict parameters on what they could and couldn't depict in them. And that was kind of interesting. It was, yeah. I, I definitely had never thought of Indiana Jones as an amoral character, because, I don't know, it seemed like he had some sense of what he considered to be just, mm -hmm. despite the self-interest. Yeah, it is odd, though. The, like, the things that I would object to today about that character would be more what you were, were talking about earlier, where it's like, oh, these treasures from other cultures, I'm going to take them and put them in an American museum or a British one where they'll be safe from the people that they actually belong to. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that would have been what Captain America would have objected to about that movie as opposed to movies from when he was younger. Mm -hmm. Although I do think that would be something that as Captain America has grown and evolved as a character and changed, it probably would be something that he would object to. Yeah, so, yeah, this this story was interesting to me because I felt like it was this kind of mix between old-timey stuff, like what we were just talking about, but then some, I don't know, nods that seemed to be in a, a more progressive direction. And that's one of the interesting things that was done with Captain America over the years, and I think especially during the Bronze Age. I mean, it's still something that gets done with him, but in the 70s, there was a real examination of Captain America as a character and what he actually represents that I think was pretty fun. And for a while, he actually stopped being Captain America because he didn't believe in the U.S. government after Watergate. And there was like a really famous story that took place. It was before Nixon actually resigned, but after the Watergate scandal had broken, where it turned out Nixon was a supervillain who was in league with this secret organization, and he ended up committing suicide inside of the White House. Holy shit. Man, you remember when it was cool to be mad at politicians that did really shady shit? <laughs> remember that? Uh. Yeah, there has definitely been a pretty big moving of the goalposts as to what is considered a scandal. Yeah. But I do think it was interesting to see Captain America struggle against, like, the way he is perceived by popular culture and the way other people see him and see the symbol of the flag and have it be really associated with very conservative values as opposed to what he believes in. And I think that's an interesting discussion, and it's one that came up a lot during this era. Hmm. I thought, too, just with the timing of this being, you know, mid-Cold War when tensions between the, the U.S. and USSR were so high that it, you know, examined... American culpability in prolonging the Cold War and making it worse, which mm -hmm. I that was not something I would have expected to see. No, and I think it did kind of walk back where it was headed initially, because there is in this issue a severing of ties between August Masters and the US government, which I don't think it had been setting up that it was going to do that. That seemed like a hasty retcon that was like, well, maybe we're going too far if we have him working for the government when he does this shit. But it did seem like that was the initial idea. Mm -hmm. Totally. I mean, they put that firewall in there, right? Like, oh, no, these are ex-CIA people. Uh -huh. These are ex-FBI people. Which, I gotta say, does not make Kyle look particularly smart. Oh, Kyle. That August Masters is just like, no, I work for an agency called the CIB. And then Kyle's like, oh, okay, well, then I guess you're good to go. And then later it's like, 
so don't you work for the CID? And he's like, nah, I made that up. Yeah. Also, there is a switch, because initially when August Masters was introduced, he said he worked for the CIB, and now all of the discussion is the CID, so he didn't even bother keeping that straight. Like, if you are trying to dupe Kyle, you only need two-thirds of a cover story. <laughs> I love the idea, too, that, like, if the last letter in your acronym starts with an A, you can just increment it. CIA, CIB, CID. He skipped CIC. Mm. Well, it was probably taken already. Oh, makes sense. Yeah. The uh, Center for um, Invasive Crustaceans. Well, yeah, you can see why Masters didn't want to use those letters. Crabs and lobsters are notoriously litigious. Yeah. Gotta keep that under control. Shit. Speaking of seafood, I have seldom <laughs> identified harder with a character than Captain America. When his girlfriend, Bernie Rosenthal, oh <laughs> says, I love you, and he says, I love the idea of going and getting some seafood. <laughs> I know. I felt so bad for both of them, really, but especially him. For everybody. That is an awkward situation. <laughs> it is the worst. Thankfully, that's not one I've been in a lot, but I think <laughs> that has happened in the past, and I think I said, thank you. It's one that I'm pretty sure I've been on both sides of it. <laughs> Neither is particularly fun. Yeah. I will say I really do like the character Bernie Rosenthal. I think she's a lot of fun. And I gotta say, Bernie is a cool enough name for a lady to have that I didn't mind her having a personalized license plate. I was just gonna say, <laughs> I almost forgive the vanity plate, but... It helps that it was on a VW bug, which at the time was not even like a collector's thing. That was just kind of a inexpensive car. I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah. It made me nostalgic for those cars. Like those were old when we were kids mm -hmm. already. I, I mean, they were enough of a novelty when we were kids that it was when you saw one, you got to punch your sibling. So slug bug. Yeah. Or we did punch buggy. We were, we were a punch buggy house. Okay. Well, we can still be friends. I appreciate that. That's interesting. I assumed that was a regional thing, but, you know, we grew up in very much the same region, so. Well, I, I did, let's be fair. I was in Barrington. You were in Farmington. <laughs> oh, that's right. And never the twain shall meet. <laughs> yeah, when our folks got together, it was a real West Side story. <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoyed reading this comic, I gotta say. I think it did the trick that it was trying to do with a crossover, which was it seemed like a fun little departure into another book, and it made me curious as to what was going on in Captain America, and makes me want to start reading this title. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I also enjoyed the, I guess, I don't know if change of pace is the right way to put it, but the difference in the artwork. Yeah. It was kind of inconsistent artwork. There were flashes of it that I really loved, and then parts of it that I don't think held up as well. I like Mike Zeck's art in general. He's probably best known, to me at least, for doing the Secret Wars crossover. And there were parts of this that I really, really liked, and overall I enjoyed his style. The inker that he was working with is a guy named John Beatty, and this is one of his first professional comic inking jobs and i think that kind of shows in some places hmm. 
especially just like the opening page. It's just really sparse and there's no background. And that didn't seem like necessarily an intentional stylistic choice as much as a time choice, you know? Oh, really? The one where they're all passed out on the floor and the yeah. shadow is looming? I, I really liked that because, I don't know, I felt like these guys are in a dark room huh. and it's mysterious and creepy and somebody's opened the door. And so you've got that light from the open door with the looming shadow. I guess you're right. I just mean on the characters themselves, I would have liked a little bit more detail. But that, I guess, is more of a personal choice. There were just some pages where things seemed a little bit off. I think Mike Zek has a slightly more cartoony style, and there were some sequences in which that worked better than others for me. Yeah, I never realized what a small head August Masters has. <laughs> or a large, large body, I don't know which it is. Well, and in at least one sequence, very large glasses where it looks like they accidentally drew him wearing a superhero mask. Yeah. No, we'll 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 talk about his get up for sure when the time comes. Okay. Overall, yeah, it was a fun change of pace in terms of the art, and it was a fun change of pace in terms of the focus of the story. I think part of what I really enjoyed about the last issue that we had too was that it centered around in large part the beast and then you had Mr. Fantastic as a side character. And it's kind of refreshing mixing it up and getting a focus on different characters, which is something that I think is kind of baked into the idea of the Defenders that hasn't been explored as much. Like, in terms of them being a non-team, you should get more of a rotating cast of characters, and we haven't gotten that as much as of late. So it's nice to see. Yeah, I agree. And I gotta say that it, it certainly makes me hanker for a good Hulk story. Yeah. I miss that guy. I miss that green galoot. I thought maybe he was going to show up at one point. When Steve was in disguise as the dark-haired guy with gloves on, uh-huh. I thought that might be the Hulk. I think partly just seeing a dark-haired guy hanging around in the desert, I'm like, oh, maybe that's the Hulk. Yeah, that was a heck of a disguise, because I, uh, I was like, man, who is this guy? Well, and it's an especially good disguise, I guess, because it is a rubber mask that goes on over a chainmail helm that has little wings on the side. I know. I was like, how is he drinking that light beer through all that getup? <laughs> well, I mean, his mouth could have been the same, I guess, because the Captain America mask only goes down to just over his nose. I know. I'm just saying it's a, it's a lot of layers. It is. There's too much fucking shit on me. What? There's too much fucking shit on me. I can't breathe. It was a pretty impressive disguise, and I'm amazed that it worked as long as it did. Although it may not have worked at all. Like, maybe it wasn't a good disguise, because the old prospector dude was on to him pretty much from the start, I guess. I know, despite his marijuana-addled <laughs> brain. The old guy was stoned, do you think? He's got a hand-rolled cigarette in the bar but it, oh. it kind of looks like a, a joint yeah that's colorado for you <laughs> everybody's getting rocky mountain high nothing but weed and rocky mountain oysters <laughs> yep that's what they say right yeah that's mostly what they say oh and jam bands sure sure well i, th I think in a lot of ways the weed is what enables people to eat rocky mountain oysters <laughs> And listen to jam bands, for that matter. One of the things that I think 
Dematis does really well in general and does a lot of in this story is very quickly summarizing past events in terms of exposition. And there are a few different times he has to do that in this issue because he has to bring Captain America readers up to speed on the fairly complicated events that led to the Defenders all getting kidnapped. And he also has to sum up a previous Captain America story for Defenders readers, like ourselves, that seemed very complicated with the American Dreamers project. Yeah, I was not familiar with that. And um, I did appreciate the way he handled it with, you know, me coming in from the Defenders, where that could have been a stumbling block for sure. But it, it was it was pretty smooth. It seemed like a pretty interesting story. I'm curious to go back and read that. Even within the brief summary and the characters that we see in this, we see a lot of nods to other literary works. It seems like that whole storyline is a pretty direct homage to Lathe of Heaven, the Ursula K. Le Guin story. Have you read that? No, I haven't, but that explains why we uh, meet uh, Ursula Le Guin without the K, maybe. <laughs> uh, okay, so actually what it is, is there's two characters. There's Ursula Richards and Philip Le Guin, which I think is a nod to two different authors, because you have Ursula Le Guin, and then what would be left would be Philip Richards. And I think that's a nod to Philip K. Dick. Oh, okay. But I think Dick would have been too on the nose there. Mm -hmm. And nobody likes a dick on their nose. That's, <laughs> that's not true. I'm sure a lot of people do. Yeah, just way to, way to yuck people's yum there, my friend. Sorry. So I think that is the idea there, is that that is supposed to be an allusion to Philip K. Dick. And there is another reference to him later on, because we meet a character named Runciter. And that is a character from a Philip K. Dick book that is about psychics being used by the U.S. government called Ubik. Hmm. So there are all these weird little literary references that are thrown in there. The Lathe of Heaven is a great book, and it's also a very short book, which is nice. Mm. But I remember reading it in, I think, high school, possibly middle school, and really, really enjoying it. It takes place in Portland, Oregon, which is, you know, fun for us. Mm -hmm. But it is about a guy who realizes that his dreams are reshaping reality. And so he starts seeing a psychiatrist about it. And the psychiatrist realizes that that is, in fact, the case and starts trying to program his dreams to make a better world and the ways in which that backfires. And it seems as though this Captain America storyline dealt with a very similar premise. Hmm. That is interesting and horrifying. Yeah, it's a great book. You should totally check it out. I should. Yeah, I also haven't read her works since probably middle school. Yeah, I recently read the Wizard of Earthsea series, and it was really great. I had never read that before, but I really loved Lathe of Heaven, and I really liked My Left Hand of Darkness, and uh, yeah, uh, Ursula Le Guin seems pretty fucking great. Indeed. But it is interesting having the character named Rudsitter in this, because in Blade Runner, as I believe an homage to Ubik, they also introduced a character named Runciter in that. And so you have this weird Ouroboros of Harrison Ford references in this issue. <laughs> because Blade Runner hadn't come out yet. 
but it would within like a couple months of this issue being published. So it, it seems like there might be a reference to it, but I don't think it was yet. But now it seems like one. And you also have uh, Captain America's neighbor who dresses like Han Solo, which I thought was fun. Oh, uh, yeah. It is always interesting to me, too, to read Captain America comics from this era when Captain America's day job was as a comic book illustrator. No shit. I did not know that. Yeah, they went through a few different jobs for him. There are certain comic book characters that always have the same profession. Like, you know, Peter Parker's pretty much always a photographer. Clark Kent is pretty much always a reporter. Bruce Wayne is pretty much always, I guess, kind of a parasite on society in his day job (laughs) as a billionaire playboy. But then you have other characters, and Captain America is one of the major ones, where they keep kind of having to try to hang different careers on him, and honestly, none of them seem to super stick. I know Green Lantern did a similar thing where he started off as a test pilot, and then later on, he ended up being an insurance salesman, and then he was selling novelty toys for a while. Oh, no. Yeah. But, yeah, with uh, Steve Rogers, I believe right before he became a comic book illustrator, he was briefly a police officer. I don't know. It's weird. And it kind of makes sense, because with the genesis of the character, his career was that he was a soldier. But that was during World War II, when he would have just enlisted as a soldier in World War II. And he doesn't really seem like a career army guy, but he has this persona that is very tied in with the U.S. government and, you know, has the rank of captain, despite him, I don't believe, owning a boat. So, yeah, they tried a few different careers on him, and at this point, he was a comic book illustrator. I think nowadays he is just employed as an Avenger by Tony Stark, and so, like, he gets a stipend for being a superhero. Mm-hmm. Which, it, it makes sense. But, yeah, just a, a interesting note to the character, and I don't feel like it ever totally worked, but I think it was a fun choice. Man, I would not want to be a superhero, but if I were, I would really not want to have to work a day job. No, and I don't think they should have to. Yeah. I think we've talked about it on the show before, but just the idea that there is some inherent nobility in the amateurism of superheroes uh kind of like the idea that you shouldn't get paid to do pro sports or stuff like that always kind of bugs me and i i feel like that's why you have so many characters who are billionaire playboys or wealthy industrialists or whatever because they're the people that can afford to take the time to do their superheroing the idea that you shouldn't get paid for it i think is dumb Mm -hmm. if you have that then it means that the only people that can afford to do this job are going to be the very wealthy. It's like an unpaid internship. It's fucking bullshit. Pay people for their labor. We meet a new character in this comic who I don't think has a ton else that he does in this storyline. And so I don't think we're going to see him again, but I did want to talk about him a little bit because this issue is his first appearance and he is a very interesting character. We don't have that much to go on, but what did you think of the dude who seemed to recognize Captain America? I was puzzled as to why they put that in there, and they did kind of seem to leave it hanging, where him making that connection was in some way going to be tied to what may happen in the future. Mm-hmm. 
it's not tied into this storyline, but his deal is he's a character named Arnie Roth, and he recognized Steve Rogers because he used to know Steve Rogers back in the day, like before World War II. He used to occasionally protect the younger, weaker Steve Rogers from neighborhood bullies and stuff. He used to probably less resemble the kind of tall Danny DeVito that he does now. (laughs) But what's especially noteworthy about this character is that he is one of the first, possibly the first, openly gay character in the Marvel Universe. Oh, really? Yeah, and he ends up being close friends with Captain America and is portrayed in a very sympathetic and... I haven't read most of his appearances, but it's my understanding fairly non-stereotypical light. Hmm. And Captain America helps him rescue his boyfriend. And uh, yeah, I I just think that's really interesting that this character first showed up here and that we get to see him and that they were doing that in comic books in 82. So this is his first appearance? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. Yeah. I haven't read much of J.M. DeMatteis's run on Captain America. I've read some of the guy who came after him was Mark Gruenwald, who I think did a really nice job. But this does make me very curious to read more of this era of Captain America. Yeah, no, it was a, it was a, it was a fun one. I did also think it was interesting that they put in that little bubble on the cover featuring Steve Rogers' review of a Smash movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was cute. It was. It's a weird thing where I can't believe that would be a selling point for most readers, so it is something to go back and enjoy after you've read the comic book, which I think is a nice touch. Yeah, totally. Well, was there anything else you wanted to talk about before we got into the minutiae, or do you think everything else is going to come up there? I think everything else will come up there. Okay. Rick, would you mind singing us into the minutiae? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Cory eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Cory, what category do you feel like starting off with? Well, we touched on it earlier, but why don't we jump into talking about the artwork? Okay, what was your favorite panel in this issue? Yeah, there was a few. The page numbers in mine are hard to read, so they might not match up with what you've got, but I, I think it's page 10, and it's, I called it Thinking Cap slash Hairdryer Chair, and mm. it's uh, the one where they're using the uh, Psychic Prober on Cap. Oh, I know exactly the one you're talking about. Yeah, there aren't any page numbers in the issue, so I have to like kind of count from the beginning every time, so it it's going to take me a little bit of time to find some of these panels. But uh, I love that panel. I think I like the one directly below it a little bit better. The one where he's saying, I don't care if it's easy or not, Miss Runciter, just do it. But the shading on his face and the way he is drawn, so like both square-jawed and determined, but in a really rounded kind of cartoony way, is really, really cool in those panels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're very dynamic and you get that nice bit of kirby crackle in the hair dryer above it. Mm-hmm. it it is very cool and yeah those are some of my favorite panels in the book as well i also really loved on page seven the one that i call caps excedrin headache <laughs> where he claims there's the psychic message that he's getting from ursula richards and philip Le Guin there 
But I think he is just remembering that awkward moment that he just shared with Bernie. My notes say, wow, Cap really does not like to talk about relationship stuff. As I said, he is a very relatable character. But yeah, he is just <laughs> flying back from his drawing desk and going, yeah! And there is just like pink pain blasts exuding from his skull. It is just so energetic that panel of him just being in such immediate and intense pain and i thought that was really effective yeah i enjoyed that one as well one of my other favorites is just i really like the way he is drawn on his motorcycle on what i have is page nine just him riding his tricked out captain america motorcycle and doing a little jump on it in an alley it's just fun. It looked like it was fun to draw. I think they enjoyed drawing a motorcycle there, and I enjoyed looking at it. Nice. Any others? I really liked the way that they played with light and shadow in the scenes where there's kind of two next to each other. One where Ursula and Philip show up psychically, and their heads are kind of floating in space and waking the defenders up. Mm-hmm. And then right next to that, the centurion who's noticing it on the monitor is bathed in this deep shadow with his features illuminated from the glow of the monitor. That's a really nicely illustrated part. It's a beautiful scene. What the fuck is J.M. DeMatteis' deal with Roman centurions? Dude, that'll come up later too, but I do not know. It's so, like, in the last issue, there was no real reason why the demons needed to be dressed as Roman centurions. I mean, it made a little bit more sense there. Well, because the the Christ thing, the, right? Sure, the Christ thing. And I guess in this, I feel like there's a certain brand of patriotism that conflates the United States with the Roman Empire. It was something that actually came up on the West Wing a lot. And so maybe that's what they're going for with August Masters. Like, oh, so he wants America to be strong and the only superpower in the world, just like the Roman Empire, I guess. So his belief in colonialism makes him want to make everybody dress like Roman centurions, maybe? (laughs) I guess so. It's like, okay, guys, here's your outfit, but you also have to have this giant purple pistol. (laughs) Yeah. Very strange. I got these at a discount from Satan. (laughs) (laughs) Said they were done with them. Still have a little demon funk on them, but you'll get used to it. Eh, shouldn't be that bad. He said they only wore them once, and that was just to teach his kid a lesson. What was your favorite sound effect this issue? Oh, man. It's a toss-up between the four different sounds that ricocheting bullets make on what I have as page 15 which is wing, zeet, brat, zat. <laughs> uh, but I think my, my ultimate favorite is what I have as page 19 is the uh, Aruga alarm. Yeah, the Aruga is drawn with such glee. And there are a couple of sound effects in this that I don't know if it was the letterer doing the sound effects in this. I believe that was Jim Novak in this issue. But the Aruga and also the Yarg in the panel that I already talked about of uh, Cap. In my opinion, probably rethinking that moment he just shared with Bernie. Mm-hmm. But both of those are drawn with such dynamism, the actual lettering of that. The Aruga, the letters fluctuate in size in a really interesting way and span across two different panels in a way that really does make it look like an alarm that would be like, you know yeah 
it's really cool. I have to go with the aruga. I don't think it's the most interesting sound, but it is my favorite visual representation of a sound in this issue by far. Yeah, it's it's the best. And then for humor, also the squat with five T's when Val's <laughs> squatting all the centurions with the flat of her blade. Mm-hmm. Which she makes very clear she is using the flat of her blade. And she tells him, she's like, I am going to swat you. <laughs> and it totally makes a swat noise. It's mm-hmm. like, wow, there is a warrior who knows her craft. Indeed. I like, too, that she made the point of saying, even though for you guys, I should use the pointy part of my sword. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good for her and uh, some great sound effects there. Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion in this issue did you find most worthy of note? Well, let's let's dive in where we started a few minutes ago on my page 12, where Mr. Rondelson, who is one of the Centurions. Yeah, just like, what's up with that? They are everywhere. It seems like a really impractical security guard choice for this day and age. I wonder if just Roman Centurion outfits are going to be J.M. DeMatteis's version of purple robes. Because, like, <laughs> there was a while where every new set of villains that shows up, they're always just wearing purple robes, whether they're in a cult or part of a shadowy organization like Hive. Maybe he is just like, you know what I would like to see? More Roman Centurions. You know who are assholes? Romans. So whether you're a demon or a shadowy government agency, you're just going to dress like a Roman centurion. Yeah, maybe so. I had always sort of equated the ubiquity of the purple robes with like a economy of art. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so the art team, when those robes got replaced with all the complicated centurion outfits, must have been like, oh, man. Maybe it is a punishment thing. Maybe that is J.M. <laughs> Mateus being like, oh, fuck you, Zek. Like, maybe Zek took the last bagel one day or something. You know what? Centurions from here on out. <laughs> you got the little ankle strap boots. You got the <laughs> fringe on the arms and the vest and the... The weird little leather skirt thing. Yep. Keep it up, Zek, and I'll make them all be riding horses. Is that what you want? <laughs> I like August Master's suit. And occasional mask. There is, as I said, that one scene where it looks like somebody just missed the memo that he is not wearing a superhero mask and tried to make his glasses into them. I don't know if that would be the work of the inker or the colorist or a combination of the two, but it was a weird choice for that one panel. Yeah, I feel like, too, with his get up here, if maybe you remove the tie, you got yourself a like a Portland uh, vintage kind of hipster thing going on. Oh, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. The big, uh, heavy blue plastic glasses frames and the, the checkered green stuff on his jacket. There was a while where Lisa was working for a glasses company that had a line of glasses that were that kind of thing. And we used to sometimes just try on the various glasses and go into character as the person we thought who would wear them. And I think the glasses, like that kind of chunky blue plastic glasses that cover up most of your face but are kind of see-through, I think that would be reflective of a character that we came up with. I always had saying, um, is this organic cocaine? Because I only do (laughs) organic cocaine. And yeah, I think that's probably what August Masters is going for with those glasses there. Yeah, they look like um, 
DMC's glasses except blue instead of black. Mm. No, I mean, nothing that I just said applies to DMC. That guy's fucking rad. Oh, I know. I, I didn't mean to equate the two. I'm not casting asparagus on DMC there. No, no. Dar- Daryl McDaniel's okay in my book. Yeah. I mean, D's for never dirty, MC's for mostly clean. He's never dirty, but he's only mostly clean. The guy exists in a liminal space, and you have to respect that. Mm-hmm. I liked Bernie Rosenthal's shirt. I thought that was cool. It, I think, is supposed to be some kind of paisley pattern. A nice puffy-sleeved, uh, hip, early 80s, green paisley shirt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very 80s, uh, indeed. Tucked into some extremely tight and high-waisted denim. Mm-hmm. It's a good look for her. And as we mentioned, uh, Steve's neighbor, Josh, handsome black man who likes to dress like Han Solo. Good for him. Mm-hmm. White shirt, black vest, jeans, solid look. Good look. Yep. Any other fashion? That's all I got. Corey, let's have ourselves a battle of the band names. What band names in this book were you able to come up with uh, from the captions and or dialogue? Despite the volume of text, I had a tricky time coming up with band names here, but I I got a couple choices. What you got? The first one is The Three Fates, which is also the name of an Emerson, Lake, and Palmer album, Hmm. but not a band. Okay. I'm very surprised that that isn't a band already. There's one called The Three Fates Project, Mm. but I didn't spend a lot of time (laughs) Googling it, so it's possible that that there is an actual Three Fates out there. But I guess they're inspired by that Emerson, Lake, and Palmer (laughs) record, so maybe they just do covers of their music. Okay, what do Emerson, Lake, and Palmer sound like? I don't know. I didn't take the time to (laughs) listen to it. It's one of those bands that I've heard their name all the time, and... uh... Gosh, it only occurs to me now that I could not pin down any of their songs other than, I guess, The Three Fates. Yeah, let's see. Uh, I know they were super influential. Yeah, I feel like they should be one of those that if you hear it, you know it. But yeah, I don't know. Prog prog rock of of some sort. But I actually couldn't think of what they sound like either. Fair enough. I had a band called Undrugged. (laughs) <laughs> Which I think probably does like kids bop version of Cypress Hill songs. <laughs> like, okay. Or just any drug song that was popular. Yeah, like, yeah. okay, like uh, JJ Kale to the tune of cocaine, but it's like about baloney or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's from the gong. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think the it would be uh, propane, probably. Hmm. I think that might have been used on King of the Hill. But like, yeah, they do songs like that where they're just like, hey, we want everybody to enjoy these classic songs, but uh, without all the scary drug references. So that's what undrugged is. I like it. I got one that's that's probably more kind of veering into metal territory again called uh, Trail of Confusion. Oh, nice. It reminds me of that uh, Genesis song, World of Confusion. Or Land mm. of Confusion? The one that had the the puppet of Ronald Reagan in it? Oh, man, I, I don't remember uh, Genesis videos. They had the spitting image puppets in it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was, you know, a Phil Collins era Genesis. 
yeah, no, that did pop up in my name verification hmm. search, but I, I couldn't find a trail of confusion banned. So, okay. Yeah. These guys, I guess now that you mentioned Genesis, maybe they're like heavy, <laughs> heavy Genesis. They exist in an alternate universe where Peter Gabriel never left Genesis. I think heavier than that. Oh, heavier than Invisible Touch, but with Peter Gabriel? Yep. Wow. Like, take that, add Emerson Lake and Palmer <laughs> okay. that we don't know. <laughs> Sounds pretty tough. Oh, yeah. I had a band called The Thundering Silence. Ooh. I feel like that's like Wall of Noise style shit. Like, mm-hmm. uh, just super loud amps, probably instrumental. But I don't know. There, there's something about the name that appeals to me. No, that that one sounds that sounds really nice. I also had the idea for a extreme like I'm going to say glam metal dairy themed band called Major Blockage. <laughs> okay. They just sing all songs about cheese curds and shit. Like, okay, you remember the band Cinderella's Chili Dog commercial? <laughs> That they did before they got popular. Well, yeah. How could I? How could I forget? You sent that to me on the the internet. <laughs> I watched it again and again. Is it Pat's dogs? Uh huh. Yeah. So it's it's like that kind of thing, but specifically about dairy products. Wow. But I think my favorite band name that I found in this is a band that I I think of as being kind of a bombastic defeatism <laughs> called. The Surrender Masters. Ooh, man, you got some good ones this time. Thank you. You got some good ones too, Corey. Aw, shucks. So of those, how are you leaning on this? Oh, man. I, concept-wise, think Undrugged is probably my fave. I don't know if the name is as um, catchy as it needs to be to go up against whoever is the reigning champ. Yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat. Like, I think it's a fun idea for a band, but in terms of just the name alone, I don't know if Undrugged is going to get us there. I think Major Blockage is funny, but I I don't know if that's actually, like, a legit band name there. Trail of Mm. Confusion is pretty good. Yeah, that definitely has a a band namey kind of feel to it. Yeah, I don't know if I have a clear vision for what that band is, but I think that's up there with the best band name. I'm kind of going with your the wall of noise one. What was it? Thunder, uh, thundering silence. The thundering silence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that one's pretty good. Let's go with that. Cool. Okay, the thundering silence. It is. It's weird because we're a week ahead in our recordings now, so we don't know exactly who they're going up against. My guess. I'm just gonna go out here and make a guess. Here's my prediction. I think they'll be going up against the Magic Twangers, probably. Oh, I sure hope so. It's a good name. Yeah. But uh, yeah, let's see how uh, Thundering Silence does. I will post that Twitter poll. Will they be able to silence the twang? Are the twangers still in it? This is once again, time is a real fucking shit show. <laughs> That's the expression, right? That's what they say. Yeah. <laughs> What was your pie not made out of steel? What words did you like best in this issue, much like you would like a pie if it were not made out of steel? I have one kind of for humor and one for prose. The the humor one is page, I think, 17, and it's Patsy, a la Ben Grimm, saying, what happened? (laughs) 
You get a few different characters saying that in this, because when August Masters wakes up from getting punched by Cap, he also has a what happened. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I thought that was fun. Uh, in terms of humorous ones, I don't think it's the best words, but it did crack me up to see Philip, the, I gotta say, probably about 11-year-old psychic kid, describing the bad guys as those crumbs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, like a 12-year-old would say in 1982. Yeah, he's an old soul. Sure. I also did appreciate Demetrius's use of the word brobdignatious to describe the underground facility in its hugeness. I always love that word. You see it used a little bit less than its brother Lilliputian, but uh, those Gulliver's Travels derived words always crack me up. Yep, that was a good one. I had to look it up again. (laughs) (laughs) I forgot since the last time it showed up. I think my favorite is from the Jeep ride that Cap is on with the old stoned prospector. He has paid the old stoned prospector $50 to drive him out into the desert in his Jeep. And I just really liked this description. Two twenties and a ten are handed over, and the journey up the tortuous mountain road begins. There is some conversation at first, mundane, impersonal, and then the two men are swallowed by the thundering silence around them. I just really like that description of that scene. I think that is like, yeah, I haven't done a ton of hitchhiking, but that seems about right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it was very evocative of the scene, too. Of You could kind of just imagine what it would be like in that open-air Jeep driving up a mountainside. Yeah, you make some chit-chat at first, and then you realize neither one of you actually wants to talk, and thank goodness. Mm-hmm. I liked that one, too. I had for my other one, I think from page two, a bit of exposition that says, Richmond attempts to answer, but his tongue spasms like a dying snake inside of his mouth. Yeah. (laughs) I was just like, (laughs) (laughs) I do not want whatever they put that dude on, because that does not sound like a good time. No, from descriptions that I've heard, probably ketamine. (laughs) (laughs) Could be. Yeah, it does not sound like a fun time. Every issue of a Defenders comic has a best defender and also a worst offender. In this issue, who did you have as your best defender and who did you have as your worst offender? I think I went a little bit on the nose with this one, but uh, I had Cap for best for kind of setting his ego aside, I felt like, and not sacrificing people for the greater good, realizing that if he waits and replants, he can probably still, you know, do what's best for the greater good without people getting killed. I think that's a good one. I also had Captain America as my choice. He didn't do a perfect job in this issue. The let's go get some fish pivot was a rough one that he tried to make in that talk. (laughs) The attempt at wearing a disguise that didn't fool anybody, possibly because he put the prosthetic mask on over his chainmail helmet. Probably not the wisest move. Worked out for him okay. But at one point, He takes two Roman centurion soldiers' heads and bonks them together like he was you in an elementary school hallway. (laughs) Classic. It's a classic move. That is actually what I have written down. (laughs) Bonks heads together. Classic. It is classic. I was so horrified that that had the expected outcome. (laughs) Corey, I'm always horrified when my actions have consequences. (laughs) It's the worst. 
Conversely, who did you have as your worst offender? Oh, I had Kyle for Kyling. Yeah, I had Kyle as well. I just wrote down, look, he said letters at me. It seemed legit. <laughs> like, guy shows up, says, hi, I'm from the government agency, the CIB. And he's like, oh, uh, okay. Kyle has government contacts. I'm not saying he would necessarily be able to figure out who worked for what agency if they're under deep cover, but he should know which agencies exist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had him for that, and then also for the part where Masters like doesn't put a guard on him. And he's like, wait, I'm not dangerous enough to get a guard? What kind of a man am I? And he goes into this like you know typical Kyle shame spiral. He tries to pull himself out. Like, say, hey, don't do the pity party, but day late and a dollar short. Yeah, I think that's fair. Also, not keeping an eye on Mindy again. Like, it makes it seem as though we had supposed that he had gone and put Mindy in a different facility. I wonder if he just left her there with Masters and just, I don't know, hoped for the best. It kind of seems like he did. It's frustrating. Like, I mean... You're responsible for hospitalizing this lady in a couple of different ways now. Go visit her more frequently. Mm -hmm. Especially where at this point, his presence apparently has a soporific effect on her. Like, go visit that poor lady, you fucking dick. He's the worst. So we are in full accord on both our best and our worst. Well done. Likewise. Corey, I have a question I have to ask you. Okay. Behold or be gone. As I mentioned, this is one of John Beatty's first professional comic inking assignments. I think he had previously done maybe one or two issues of Captain America. I'm not sure about that. He, like Mike Zek, is probably best known for working on the Secret Wars miniseries. But he has a strangely elaborate Wikipedia entry. Hmm. And I was curious as to who might be filling it out, but I think there's actually a clue in it as to who is filling it out. Because it says that he got his first comic book work when he met some professionals when he was attending Orlando Con in 1980, alongside his friend Craig Zablo. And then in parentheses, it says, who is the creator of the fan site, the Stallone Zone, a Sylvester Stallone fan site. Whoa. So I'm suspecting that Craig Zablo is the guy who filled out that Wikipedia entry so that he could name drop himself and The Stallone Zone. Mm -hmm. So that is what inspired this week's Beholder Be Gone. Corey, a portal appears in your living room that is labeled only The Stallone Zone. Do you walk through it? Um, I do not, just because the whole idea of not knowing if you're going to be able to get back through mm. a portal, and also with my remarkably poor sense of direction, like, <laughs> I've gotten lost a few times just because I, you know, I took a right when I should have taken a left or whatever. I just don't think I'd be able to get back, and I mean, I guess there's probably worse places to be trapped, <laughs> but I don't want to chance it. Then let's tweak the question a little bit. It is marked the Stallone Zone, and you somehow know that if you walk through it, you will spend a week in the Stallone Zone, whatever that is, and then will be returned. Oh, sure. Yeah, why not? Okay, what do you think the Stallone Zone is? Oh, I don't know, but maybe I, I like get to meet Rocky and Rambo. 
that sort of thing. It's possible. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe you it, it puts you in a universe where all of Stallone's characters exist simultaneously, and that is what populates the universe. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I would want to hang out there. I mean, Rambo is a deranged murderer, so not necessarily the guy you want to hang out with. I think you're probably fine if you don't, like, have Brian Dennehy give him a weird lice shower or whatever. So you're probably okay with Rambo. Uh, you're probably okay hanging out with Snaps Provolone from the movie Oscar. <laughs> Rocky seems like a nice guy. Yeah, I think you're probably okay if that is what it is. I would be concerned that the Stallone zone might be Sylvester Stallone's intensive workout. I, I don't want to end up having to do that for a week. That could be pretty rough. The Stallone zone seems like it could be where you go to hear Sylvester Stallone's unfiltered opinions on cancel culture or whatever. That seems decidedly unpleasant. I wouldn't want to go to that Stallone zone. Spending a week there seems like a pretty unpleasant time. But I think I do end up stepping through the portal because I am curious. First of all, I don't want to miss out if I do get to, you know, hang out with Rocky. In Rocky 4, we find out he has that fun robot that he bought for Polly. Maybe Mm -hmm. he'd buy me a robot for my birthday. I don't know. But also, the Stallone Zone seems like it might be a fun-themed restaurant. <laughs> wow. We barely made it through a couple days of Vegas buffets. You think you can do a, <laughs> a whole week of a Stallone Zone fair? I'm just curious about it. I, it could be tough. I don't know which direction it goes. Like, What kind of items do you think would be in a Sylvester Stallone-themed restaurant? In Rocky, he did own an Italian restaurant. Like, seems like a pretty standard red sauce Italian eatery. I would be totally down with that. Mm-hmm. But what if it's like, oh, no, all we sell here is those raw egg shakes that he eats in the Rocky movies. I, I wouldn't want to eat raw eggs for a week. That seems terrible. Well, it's probably got a menu. Yeah. With uh, just yeah, red sauce and uh, raw egg shakes. Oh, that doesn't sound great. Hey, you went through the portal, my friend. Eat up. He did chase that chicken around. Maybe there's some good uh, good chicken on the menu. I, I would enjoy that. Chicken farm? Yeah, I would be okay. What what else would be? Oh, he could, uh, like in the movie Cobra, where he eats that pizza that he, I think, cuts up with scissors or something. How, how do you remember all of this? It was just a really weird scene in Cobra where he's like kind of a health nut, but also he's eating cold pizza that he shares with a mouse that I think he cut up with scissors or something. He did something where he ate the pizza really weird. Oh, man. Now so, I'm going to have to go watch Cobra again to figure that out. Well, you're welcome. Ugh. Crime's the disease. He's the cure. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I guess overall, yeah, I am. Oh, oh plus... uh. I gotta believe that Snaps Provolone probably got some kind of a nice provolone type appetizer on the menu. And, uh, you know, provolone, an underrated cheese, in my opinion. Great sandwich cheese. Yeah, kind of a thinking man's mozzarella. (laughs) Good meltability. Mm. Major Blockage should have some songs about that. Oh, yeah. So it sounds like for very different reasons, we ended up with a pair of beholds. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's fucking head to the Stallone zone and have us some appetizers. Let's see what we can see. God, I hope it's not just raw eggs. Me too. Corey, 
Despite his continued absence from both the Defenders, and in this specific instance, Captain America, we both know that the Hulk rules. In this issue, what are the Hulk's rules? Mm, yeah, he took a page from Cap's book in this case. The Hulk's rules this time around are, hey, think things through. Take your time. Make a plan. The greater good may not always require a sacrifice. Hmm. I think that's an excellent rule. I had the Hulk also learning from Captain America's example, but the rule that I had him learning is if your significant other wants to have a serious conversation about the state of your relationship, it's not enough to change the subject. You have to physically run away. Mm -hmm. Try to knock some chairs over if you can. Try to impede them from following you. But if you just change the subject, you're going to end up having a very awkward car ride home and one hell of an Excedrin headache. Physically run away. Yep. Missed out on his fish dinner, too. I know. So, uh, yeah, learn from Captain America. I think we could probably synthesize these lessons into if someone has to have a serious conversation, make a plan, think things through in advance, and physically run away. Mm -hmm. And that's the Hulk's rules. Rules to live by. Mm-hmm. Corey, I have just one further question I have to ask you. Mm -hmm. In the year of our Lord 1982, in the month of our Lord April, what Wong doings was Wong doing? Yeah, so in April of 82, to learn one of the things that Wong was up to, we actually have to take a step back in time to the previous month back to, I think we are at issue 105. That was the one with the crystal, right, that wanted mm -hmm. to consume everybody. So Wong had, uh, after that was destroyed by the beast, you know, kind of scraped up some of the powder from the floor, the Sanctum Sanctimodius. Oh, no! Yep. Wong had rented some lab space and had been experimenting with that leftover powdered immortality crystal and had come up with some pretty interesting compounds However, uh, it was a shared lab space, and what Wong didn't know is that there was some corporate espionage going on. There was a guy from uh, the General Foods Company, which later got acquired by Kraft Foods, who had taken secretly Wong's research and uh, taken it back to their lab and turned that into the powdered gold mine that became Crystal Light that was released oh. <laughs> in April 82 to the American public. So uh, they sold it in test markets in 82. After a few years, it proliferated out through the rest of the U.S. By 84, they had sold $150 million worth of this stuff, uh, representing 20% of all powdered drink mixes and two-thirds of all sugar-free drink mixes in the United States. Oh, God. So that burning feeling is those tiny crystal dinobots attacking the back of your throat? Yeah, exactly. So that's oh. why if you are making your crystal light, just don't, you gotta hold your breath, right? Yeah, otherwise the resurrection stone will take over. You'll find yourself humming Rush lyrics. Uh-huh. Yeah, or worse. Wow. An eventful April for Wong. And <laughs> that isn't all that he was up to. In addition to inadvertently unleashing crystal light upon the world, <laughs> Wong also, early in the month, 
accompanied Doctor Strange to see a film. A film called Conan the Barbarian. <laughs> Overall, they both really enjoyed themselves. But after the movie, Steve just kept shaking his head back and forth and being like, Oh no, I don't care for that. And Wong's like, all right, what, what is it, Steve? And Steve's like, well, that Thulsa Doom character. When I learned that he was doing magic to improve the world, I thought, well, I like the cut of this Thulsa Doom's jib. But then, when they showed him, he had those horrible bangs. <laughs> it sets the wrong image for sorcerers. And Wong's like, that's what you object to about the character Thulsa Doom. And Steve's like, yes, otherwise rather reasonable fellow. <laughs> Strong magician, understands that the flesh is more powerful than the sword. I wasn't really listening to that, but it sounded quite ribald. But those bangs, oh, terrible. Set the wizarding community back hundreds of years. And so Wong's like, yeah, well, sounds like maybe you should do something about that. And they went back to the sanctum. Steve found himself thinking, yes, I should do something about that. And the next day, he saw Wong was reading a book. He's like, Wong, what's that you're reading? He's like, oh, it's uh, this, this book, Blondie, by uh, Lester Bangs. Man, this guy really is a wizard with words. Steve was like, a wizard with bangs? Oh, I don't like the sound of that. I'm going to put an end to wizards having bangs. And so he set a spell over the state of New York that any wizard having bangs would have to be sent away. <laughs> Things got convoluted in his mind, and that is why, unfortunately, on April 30th, Lester Bangs died in his Chelsea, New York apartment. Oh, no. Yeah, Steve got some words mixed up in his spell, and he ended up hurting the wizard of words, Lester Bangs. And that led to Lester Bangs' demise from an overdose resulting from him trying to self-medicate his flu and also being very fond of drugs. Damn it, Steve. Yeah, and that is the Wong doings that Wong was doing in April of 1982. Have you read any of uh, Lester Bangs' music reviews? I think so. It's been a super long time. Man, he had one that was for the band Slade that I think about all the time. It was, the entire review was written with exclamation points for every sentence. <laughs> and to this day, I don't know to what extent it was ironic in its effusive praise of Slade. And it was just the perfect review for their music. And what a shame that Steve inadvertently ended his life so soon. Indeed. Damn. Bad job, Steve. And Wong, just never tell Steve what you're reading. No good will come from it. <laughs> Definitely don't say the word wizard. Yeah, it's a real trigger word. <laughs> that and the word bangs. Mm -hmm. Well, Corey, thank you so much for joining us. I had a great time talking uh, some Captain America with you. Yeah, thank you. It's a fun change of pace. We will be back next week with another new Teen Titans comic. And in a couple weeks, we'll head back to the Defenders and see the conclusion of this Captain America team-up. Looking forward to that. In the meantime, if you would like to get into touch with us, we can be reached at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon 97294, or 
as this is the future, we can also be reached electronically, can you imagine, at ttwasteland at gmail.com. We're also up in some places on the internets, probably. If you want to check out my thoughts on various topics, comic bookular and otherwise, then look us up on the socials media. Just send an astral projection of your floating disembodied head into the internet and have it look up the phrase, tighten up the defense. And once you scroll past all the stuff about a certain Tennessee football team, we'll be there. And hey, if you can't find us there, there's one more place you can look, and that's deep inside your heart. Corey, what are you doing inside people's heart this week? Let's see. I know I'm often, like, cooking or cleaning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's because we usually record on the weekends. So, I don't know, maybe I'm going to switch it up and, and relax. Oh. Crack a beer, put my feet up, and uh, start making it through that uh, back catalog of those Stallone movies to see what we've gotten <laughs> ourselves into. Sounds good. I think this week I'm going to be uh, watching the movie Working Girl. That's what I'm going to be doing in people's hearts this week. I haven't seen that movie in a really long time. And uh, I just watched Postcards from the Edge, and that was really good. And uh, Working Girl is the movie that Mike Nichols directed right before that. So I think I'm going to watch that too. Also, I think this issue made me want to watch more Harrison Ford stuff. And he's in that movie. So there you go. That's what I'm going to be doing in your heart watching the movie Working Girl, and uh, probably trying to get that Carly Simon song out of my head from that movie. You remember that song, Corey? Mm -mm. Let the river run, let all the dreamers wake the nation. Do you know that song? No. Oh. I'm shocked. It's so beautiful. <laughs> it's Well, it's not as good when Carly Simon sings it as what I do. Oh. Okay. Corey, Corey, do you get it? Because I'm so vain. I oh, huh? Uh -huh. Huh? probably think that song is about me. <laughs> but you know, here's the weird part, Corey. That song's about me. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. If you would like to support the show monetarily, <laughs> you can do so by checking us out at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a bunch of bonus material. There should be, finally, I know it's it's coming in a little bit late, but there should be a new What the Duck, a podcast most filed, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That is the Howard the Duck podcast that I co-host with my wife, Lisa. As I mentioned, we had been tr having some trouble finding a time when we could record that because of Finley's recovery schedule and him being a goddamn monster if he's not in the same room with us. But uh, I think we figured out a way to get some recording in soon. So there should be a new episode of that coming out. There are also a whole bunch of video reviews of classic comic books that are up there. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, I've been doing a deep dive into the Shadow comics, and that's been a heck of a lot of fun. So you can join me for that stuff. There's also just a ton of other bonus material that is up there that is exclusively available to our donors as a thank you for helping to support the show and really keep it going over the years. It means a heck of a lot to me. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, thank you. If you would like to support the show in a non-monetary way, Corey, what's a good way for people to do that? There's two main things that come to mind. The first is to leave a review for mm. the show. Uh, you could leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast. Okay. 
say something about the show that you think will help other people get an idea about what you like about it. Yeah, I, I think that sounds like a good idea. What would be an example of that, Corey? You could say something like, I have never learned so much about the history of various beverages mm. or superhero stuff. Ah. Terrible football podcast. Five stars. Very nice. And, you know, if you don't like the show, I know I've said this before, but it would really put me in my place if you left a sarcastic five-star review. You know, just something along the lines of, this show is so good. I love it all the way. They never ramble on about Carly Simon for no particular reason. Five stars. I tell you, I would be devastated at a review like that. It would really mm -hmm. put me in my place, and I think I would learn my lesson. So if you hate the show, and yet for some reason listened to it all the way through until the very end, why not leave a review like that? Yeah, shut me up. Mm -hmm. What's the other way people can support the show, Corey? Oh, the other way is they could uh, tell people about it. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just uh, walk down the street and spread the word. Maybe put on one of those sandwich boards, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, sandwich board is a good way to do it. Yeah, just right tighten up the defense on it and then put a picture of a sandwich. Mm -hmm. People be like, tighten up the defense? Is that a hot new sandwich? I should go check it out. Uh-huh. And then they'll look us up and then they'll be like, oh, huh. Well, I guess I'll give it a try. And then they're hooked. Because, mm -hmm. you know, the first time's free. Exactly. And then all the other times are also free. Mm -hmm. I'm a terrible drug dealer. <laughs> yeah. Well, you got to bring their own sandwich, though. Yeah, that's, that's where we get you. <laughs> no free sandwiches. That's right. There's no such thing as a free sandwich. Five stars. Five stars. <laughs> well... Thanks, guys, and until next week, I love you. <laughs> Do you want to go get some fish? Goodbye! Bye! <laughs> and they knew it! All right, you ready? I may have to burp, but uh, I don't know when it's going to happen. Ooga booga. Uh, thank ha! you. I scared it out of you. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that was a thing. <laughs> I did. wasn't. It was I'm just... pretty sure I scared it out of you. Your comic timing is impeccable. <laughs> or maybe mine. I don't know. I, or you are triggered by the word ooga booga in ways that neither of us fully expect. <laughs> that's true you did scare me really bad that one time just by saying it when we were driving you said it regular too I yeah think. i think i just said okay Corey, ooga booga and you're like ah! <laughs> i was not expecting it yeah but it did scare the hiccups out of you so uh i'm glad it worked probably mm -hmm. both times <laughs> yep all right you're ready <laughs> yep <laughs>